Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome everybody to episode 28 of Push Dose EMS, your monthly educational offering from the Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. I'm your host, Jeff Matchner, Clinical Education and QA Manager with the county. Uh, joining me today are some usual folks and a couple special guests. So going down the list that I see, uh, System Medical Director, Dr. Ben Weston. Dr. Weston, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Excited to be here. EMS Fellow, Dr. Nick Waklinski. Hello, hello. Welcome, welcome. Uh, and joining us a special guest today, uh, Kristen Harride. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you. And Battalion Chief Bob Mankey. Chief Mankey, welcome. Thank you. We'll get into some introductions for our guests in just a couple minutes. Dan Pojar is not able to be with us this month, so there's no updates from the system, but we will turn it over to Dr. Weston for any medical direction updates. All right. Thank you, Jeff. No updates today, but uh, I just wanted to take a moment. Thank everyone for listening and talk about today's topic. So today's topic should really be uh, of interest to any EMS provider, whether you have been on the job for two months uh, or 20 years. So no matter your department, no matter your rig assignment, you are thrust headfirst into horrendous situations on a regular basis. Uh, and whether you realize it or not, these situations affect you. Uh, and they affect those on your crew, and thereby they're affecting your and your families uh, as well. Provider mental health is a priority for your departments, for OEM, uh, and hopefully for you as well. Now, last month we talked about death notification, a topic that creates mental health strain for anyone who has to make not only the determination of death, but the subsequent notification uh, as at times on a daily basis in our system. Today, we'll focus on broader aspects of mental health uh, with two experts, Battalion Chief Mankey and Kristen Harride, both with an incredible amount of experience in this field. Um, so I'm looking forward to hearing this podcast and hearing from them, and I hope you are too. Thanks a lot, and I'll hand it back to you, Jeff. Thanks, Dr. Weston. Uh, a great introduction to today's topic and some great sentiment on the value of our well-being and mental health within the EMS and fire service. So. Without further ado, I will hand it over to Dr. Wilkinski, uh, Kristen, and Chief Mankey. All right. Thanks so much, Jeff. Uh, first off, I just want to make sure we wish Dr. McGlynn well and hope uh, maternity leave is treating her okay. Um, she'll be out for the next few weeks or so, and hopefully she'll be joining us back again in January. Um, so as you recall, uh, we just discussed death notification last month, and we mentioned that those situations can have profound effect on your mental well-being. In that vein, EMS work is stressful, leading to significant wear and tear on personnel, both physically and mentally. So we wanted to take some time this month to discuss important concepts surrounding mental well-being. To kind of help frame this topic a little better, there's two important concepts I'd like to kind of mention, um, and that's stress and strain. So strain is the amount an inherent force an object has at any given time, just based on its usage. Kind of think like a steel beam holding up a bridge. Um, it's, it's always going to have some stress on it, just holding up the weight of that bridge. And then the stress on that is the additional force, say, like from the cars driving over it. And so there's just so much stress that it can take um, at a given time. Um, and so the more strain that's on an object, the greater that stress is going to be. Now, consider your jobs as EMS providers. You're under a high amount of strain, just given the inherent nature of the job. The 24-hour shifts, the sleep disruption, constantly interacting with sick and injured patients, it all really adds up. And then you add a significant stressor, such as a terrible case, a pandemic, or some civil unrest, kind of sound familiar. 
and it can take a catastrophic toll on your mental state. And so, you know, everyone reacts and interprets situations differently. Provider A may interpret a case to be particularly stressful, while provider B found it to be more routine. Now, this doesn't mean that provider A is weaker or lacks fortitude when compared to provider B. There are many factors that lead to these different interpretations. For example, the amount of sleep that was had the night before, when each person last ate, their role in the call or the case, how the case relates to the personal life, etc. This is why it's important to make provider check-ins more routine and ensure there are different and easily accessible levels of care depending on the provider's situation. We must not simply wait for a terrible case to come along to implement this protocol. It needs to be more routine after any potential stressful case, i.e. like any like trauma alerts, pediatric cardiac arrest, or any cardiac arrest in general for that matter. And you know, the term resilience is frequently used in the medical field, and it's used to describe like the provider's ability to cope with and absorb stressors tossed their way. And you know, in order to improve on that, like building a culture that promotes provider wellness and encourages providers to take priority of their mental well-being while instating protocols and providing accessible resources is how strong resilience is built. Now, I am no expert in this field by any means and can definitely benefit from the concepts I mentioned here. Thankfully, we have a couple of guests here today to help further shed light on this very important topic and provide their insights. I would like to welcome Battalion Chief Bob Mankey and Kristen Harride to our podcast today. Bob and Kristen, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. So I just kind of want to like kind of ask you guys some questions, kind of get a better idea of the, the important concepts we're going to talk about here today. So can you both tell us a little more about what you do and how you make provider mental health a priority? Well, I, I can just give you a little bit about my background. As you know, I'm a battalion chief for the fire department. Um, I started here in 95, uh, worked my way up the ranks. I've held everything from paramedic, MPO, truck operator, lieutenant, up until currently a battalion chief. I was also our, our union president for an extended period of time. And a lot of times in those roles, um, we commonly get the, the and see the stressors that our crews go through. And, you know, up until recent, had to help them and also be concerned about the stigmas that are out there, which we'll talk about later. I also joined the mem- uh, membership uh, assistance program, which is offered through the union and still um, a part of, which is a peer-to-peer support program that, again, is offered through the state. I mobilized uh, to help out in Hurricane Katrina, and then um, I-, I met Kristen through the Milwaukee County Shared Services peer support team and recently joined that as well. As far as as our department goes, uh, we've developed our our local peer support team. We attend trainings on on an annual basis, constantly looking at what's going on within our department. Um, Our our chief and assistant chief have also um, implemented, um, you know, workout programs to help uh, deal with that. Uh, As far as the mental health goes, uh, we see them three to four times a week where they come to the firehouse. And personally, on on my shift, I make it a priority that I make the rounds every day. I shake everyone's hand um, just to see how they're doing. It's kind of there, gives me a guide as, as a supervisor of, of how they're going to react throughout the day. And it kind of gives me a, a feel of what's going on at my crew. So it's not uh, nothing real fancy, but again, it's just, I want to help uh, my crew through, through these situations that they may arise and let them know I'm there for them. So that's personally what I do. Great, thanks so much. And Kristen, can you kind of, you know, tell us more about, you know, how you, what you do and how you make uh, provider mental health a priority? 
Absolutely. So I'm a master's prepared social worker and I'm an advanced EMT. I currently work for the city of Kenosha, their fire and police departments as a dedicated mental health professional just for the first responders. Um, And I came to them from um, the Milwaukee Fire Department where I was the health and safety officer. I spent the first 20 years of my career as a social worker volunteering for an organization called TIRE, Traumatic Incident Resource, which is how I met Bob, volunteering my time with first responding organizations, helping them after um, they experienced a critical incident, either them collectively as a department or an individual provider, and then providing the education to build peer support teams. So when I think about how I make mental health a priority for first responders, I think I do that in probably four primary ways. One is responding to the first responders after they have a critical incident, helping first responders when something difficult happens in their life, like divorce, addiction, um, maybe a diagnosis, um, a mental health diagnosis with them or their family or a cancer diagnosis, something big that happens. Certainly assisting them to find the most appropriate level of care available and the most competent provider to give them that care. And then by um, providing the education to first responding agencies to help them build and sustain their peer support teams. Well, great. Yeah, definitely very beneficial to have you both on today to kind of help shed some light on this topic then. So, you know, uh, so how has provider mental health been handled up until recently? Or is this just something we really never used to talk about? up until now? Well, from my perspective, there's there's a stigma. Uh, the fear of the stigma gets in the way up until recent. Uh, firefighters, they've always been told that these calls or these emotions that they that they feel, you know, they need to file them away. They need to toughen up. Um, you need to get over it, move on. That's the best way for it. Uh, and, and then this has obviously created a stigma that if someone gets help, they're, they're considered weak or get a bad name. Once these labels are, are created, then it's hard to shake that assumption and titles are given. The good thing is that the paradigm is starting to shift. Uh, that being said, that firefighter who is going through that tough situation is still getting anxious. Um, they're worried about what others think. Even though the reality may not be true, as far as the departments go, the question comes, what do we do if we have some mental health issues as well? You know, and, and then if they are suicidal, what do we do from there? You know, and sometimes those questions are, are, are afraid that, you know, the answers are, are, are departments are afraid of. Remember that this is a medical condition and protected under HIPAA laws. So if this involves you, I mean, it is a medical condition and, and it does not necessarily need to be told that you had it. Um, you do not need to disclose this. So it's just up until recent, there was that stigma, but that paradigm is definitely shifting. Yeah, I would agree with that completely. I think that, um, you know, historically, support looked like telling providers just to suck it up, right? That was the mentality that if you if you weren't, if you can't handle what you're seeing, then you can't handle being in the role. And then that shifted to a paradigm of everything that bad happened, we did a debriefing for, which really wasn't the right answer either. And then today, I think um, that the shift really is to education. And I think this is where um, we're doing a better job than we've ever done with it. So education from the beginning, all the way through their their career about what is mental health? What does it look like for a first responder? How does this work 
impact you um, specifically, the, the calls that you see, helping individuals understand the neurobiology of trauma. And I think it looks like the a better ability to get the support that's needed for each first responder. So that support looks like leaders who understand that it isn't the weak versus the strong any longer. Um, and it looks like competent mental health providers who understand the unique culture of the fire, police, and EMS providers that we have in our community. Yeah, it's, I think definitely see that, like, you know, the medical side, too, like, you know, throughout residency and such, you know, we always talk, you know, try to make this more of a normal thing. You know, everyone kind of deals with, you know, their own mental health struggles, and it's more of a, it's, it's more commonplace than I think we realize. And so kind of, it's great to see that we're kind of like breaking down that stigma and, you know, making it more of a normal thing to kind of help people understand and realize that it's okay to reach out. It's kind of, you know, on that front, like, wh like, when do you suggest folks reach out about this kind of stuff? Is it just like what they're at their breaking point? Is it more like, should we just reach out early and often? Like, how, how should we go about this? Everyone has a, a emotional reactions to stressors. Uh, we all get anxious. We all get upset. Um, we have times we feel depressed. We all get in bad moods. Um, those feelings are all normal. It's when those emotions are, are, are long-term and we cannot shake those emotions, they start to take over our everyday life, both at home and at work. Um, we start to drink more um, and alcohol use disorder starts to come into play. And again, not that you're an alcoholic because you don't need to be an alcoholic to have an alcohol problem. But when you do drink, do you drink the blackout or, or things like that? Um, you know, PTSD, sleep deprivation. Um, when all those things are extended, again, that's when you start to consider that you need to get help. Um, you know, irritability, feeling helpless, loss of energy. These are all feelings that I, I'd be willing to bet that all of us in the field have felt. Um, trouble sleeping, uh, unexplained aches and pains. Um, again, but do they last over a period of time? And if that happens, don't be afraid to ask. Uh, ask for help it's time to consider getting that help and or, you know, if you don't want to talk to, you know, your supervisor or or a medical professional or EAP, at least talk to your peer, peer support. Um, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but you do have access to that within our system. And I would say I agree with what Bob said. Um, and I think it's hard for us as humans to see when the work is impacting us. I think we are often the last ones to recognize it in ourselves. Um, so my best suggestion is to try and hear your loved ones when they tell you that you've changed, that you aren't the same person that they married or that they're worried about you. That definitely is a direct cue that something is up and it's time to reach out. Yeah, that's some some great insight on that. You know, it's sometimes hard to kind of recognize that. And then as Kristen mentioned, kind of listening to the people around you because, you know, your friends and family and loved ones kind of understand and know you well. And so if they're noticing a change, definitely listen to that and kind of take advantage of that or, you know, act on that. And kind of in that vein, and I, we kind of mentioned this, I don't know if you, if you have any particular thoughts on like, are there like any particular triggers that should prompt us to ask for help? Like, are there were how do we like kind of prevent us from getting to that point where we're like not sleeping, we're like irritable, we're drinking more? Like, are there certain triggers before that we should look for or just kind of be more aware of? Well, I, I think it's hard to put it in black and white of, of what to, to look for. Um, but most of the time, those triggers, you don't notice them. Like like Kristen, Kristen said, it, it's from the family and your crew that notices them. And then they start talking and you kind of hear it secondhand that you're the one that they're talking about, right? Um, they know it usually before that firefighter or paramedic may even realize it. And 
we'll talk about it a little bit for, but I kind of went down the same road. Uh, my daughter was in middle school at the time. Now she's in college. Um, but it was, you know, she had the courage to say something to me. And, and, and those triggers, the angry, the tired, not wanting to do something stuff with the family just because you were just, just beat all the time. Um, you know, it took her to say something to me before I really realized it. And again, it's not that it, it's after, you know, we've had a long night of calls because um, we've all had the, we were up all night. It's just, it extended over, over a period of time. And then for me, the trigger again was anger, irritability, which are also, um, uh, IAFF just put something out that those are usually your two uh, common ones that we do see in the protective services. Um, and they were there. I just never noticed them and they felt normal to me. Um, so again, just listening to what the families um, are, are telling you, like Kristen said. Yep, I would agree completely. I think the trauma that um, each of us experience affects us in every way in which we are human. So mentally, emotionally, behaviorally, physically, and spiritually. So you may come to realize that over time, you've changed and you're not happy with who you are now. Maybe you're cranky all the time and act and feel as though the glass is always half empty. Maybe you don't feel as much compassion any longer towards your patients. Maybe you're acutely experiencing symptoms such as like trouble with sleeping, which certainly in our world and first responders, that is an issue that the majority of people have difficulty sleeping. Maybe it's weight gain or weight loss, showing signs and symptoms of depression, or perhaps that you're unable to stop that movie reel in your head. And so the only way to make that movie real stop is to drink, to um, to have something to help you black out so that you don't see that any longer. Maybe the movie reel goes and you never allow yourself quiet. Maybe the TV or the radio has to be on all the time so that you're not alone with your own thoughts. It's definitely a trigger. Maybe you're fighting at home with your spouse and feel disconnected from your kids. Maybe you don't feel connected to anyone any longer. Or maybe you don't feel anything any longer. Something may get you from a particularly difficult case, or perhaps it's the accumulation effect over time um, of the unprocessed trauma through the calls that you carry. But um, I think that listening to the world around you definitely helps you to know when is it time to reach out. Yeah, then those are sometimes it's hard to kind of recognize yourself until like, again, someone points it out or but it's great to kind of have that awareness in mind, just so you can kind of hopefully pick up on it before, you know, you get too far down the road and things kind of get a little more advanced. So, so like, you know, when it comes to asking for help, then like what typically happens when someone asks for help? Like, what does that process look like? Well, again, there's no cookie cutter way of what happens. Um, it depends on that situation. The only Definite thing is the decision needs to be made that the firefighter needs help and, and they want to, you know, want to get the help. Um, you know, these firefighters, are not, they're going to be in denial. They're not going to always be truthful to you and you're not going to get the full story, but you got to kind of be there as, as a boss, as a friend to look out and make sure that you have the confident enough and, and the guts, I guess, to tell the firefighter that, they, they, hey, you're acting not right. Um, let's consider getting you some help. You can consider the medical route. Issue there that tends to happen is when you go to the medical route, and Kristen can correct me if I'm wrong, the first piece of that is they tend to um, give you medication for it. And then the second piece to that is to uh, direct you towards uh, talking to someone. 
But all the literature out there is that second piece is not always happening. And then the, the person that needs the help, um, there are times where they say, forget it, it didn't help me the first time, and they were just turned off totally. So we have to watch out for that. Um, but if, if someone is truly on the other extreme, um, if they're suicidal, I mean, don't be afraid to call 911. Um, you know, don't be afraid first to ask the question, are you suicidal and do you have a plan? A lot of times professionals in our, our field are afraid to ask that question because what do we do then, right? Um, so don't be afraid if it's an immediate uh, danger, you know, call 911, even though we are professionals, you know, try contacting your therapist if they have one. Um, don't be afraid to um, consider uh, the suicide hotline. You know, and, and I'll put a plug out there. It's it's 1-800-273-8255. And more importantly, don't leave that member alone, especially if they're on the extreme end. Um, they, are they comfortable enough? And again, um, they're in an emotional state. They may not tell the truth or they may not remember or that type of thing. But, you know, ask them, do they have access to lethal means uh, in, in the house? And then can we remove those lethal means? And kind of the, the the beginning or the middle of the road, you know, you can consider your peer support teams. And once those peer support teams are activated, then you can, you know, they, they are there with you from beginning to end. They guide you through the path um, to make sure that you get the, the help you need. So I know I kind of was all over the board, but there, there's a lot of help that's out there. It's just, you know, we, we just need to make sure that our members are aware of that and that we get them access to it. Yeah, I agree. I think that each organization is in a unique spot when it comes to providing support. You know, some organizations in our community are way ahead of the curve. The Milwaukee Fire Department, Franklin, Greenfield, right? These these chiefs and these peer support teams are really well developed in these programs. But in general, when you as the provider reach out, you should be offered options for resources. You should be offered peer support, whether it's through your own department or it's statewide through the MAP team or locally our shared services, you should be offered EAP um, and you should be offered a mental health provider that is familiar with first responders. That And Bob alluded to this in what he said that we as, as first responders will go to a mental health provider and they are not competent in providing support to us. And then it's hard to get someone to go back for a second go around. Services should be provided to you through your EAP benefit or through your health insurance. Most individuals I have found in my career don't actually need time away from work to address their mental health problems. And I think that that's something that first responders are often very worried about is what about the time away from work? And it actually, the percentage is small of the individuals who need to take time away from work to address the mental health concerns. Most people can do that while at work. You know, we all work a unique rotating type of shift. So it actually gives you a lot of opportunities to seek mental health care during regular business hours. Individual needs an inpatient program, and you're a firefighter. Certainly, through the IAFF, they have one of the greatest programs out there um, in Maryland. And locally, we have very good inpatient provider programs as well. Um, most of our organizations offer FMLA or some type of a sick leave option that should be explored, just like any other medical issue. 
And just like any other medical issue, the treatment that you receive for your mental health concern is confidential. It is certainly protected by HIPAA, even when that's provided through your EAP. And I think that that really is um, a stigma that's out there. And I think it's a very, very real concern that first responders feel is if I get help for this, then my employer is going to know and it you know, affect my employment. And if I can just one more thing to add to that, too, for me personally, and I know Kristen said it, is finding the right person to help. Um, it, it took me a couple go arounds um, to find someone to give me uh, the help that I needed. It, that being said, the IFF Center of Excellence, actually, I finally re- I went to them and not that I needed to go out there or anything, but it was more they they were able to gather resources locally for me of, of people that deal with firefighters and police officers. So um, that's another option as well. And you can't be discouraged that you if you go to a, a doctor's visit two or three times before you find one, that, that may happen. But just understand that that's kind of a little roadblock that you may have, but ultimately getting you the help and, and you're not alone. Um, your peer support person will be there with you is what we, uh, what we want to make happen. Great. And I think, you know, those are some great points to kind of take away from this, you know, especially, you know, as Bob kind of mentioned, like if you're talking to your peers and like, I think sometimes you worry about, you know, if you mention suicide, people are going to think of, you know, think about it more. And, you know, we know that's not the case that, you know, data shows that that's, that's not exactly, you know, how it works. And so just, you know, it's, it's important to ask your friends, your colleagues about this. And if you, they are contemplating some of this stuff to kind of assist them in getting help. And as Kristen mentioned, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have to take that time off of work. It just means, you know, have to take those steps to kind of try and get yourself back, you know, on the right track. So some excellent points. So Bob, I was hoping to pick your brain a little more about how this process kind of looks in Milwaukee County and how, you know, how folks in, in the agencies within the county reach out for help, or is there a specific process in, uh, in place? There's not a specific, you know, shared service policy in Milwaukee County that, that that's out there. So I can't speak for every fire department in the county. What I can, what can say is that there are peer support teams available within the county departments. You have the Professional Firefighters of Wisconsin Membership Assistance Program, uh, which I'm a part of, and and there should be uh, MAP uh, flyers um, at, at all the departments, and if not, contact me and we can get those. The MAP team is made up of members throughout the state that are peers that are willing to help. There are also various departments within the county that have peer support teams, like West Dallas, Greenfield, Franklin, and Milwaukee. Um, those are the four that I know of. And sorry if I if I left someone out. Um, I can't speak for all the other departments and shared services, but if needed, they can always give any one of these departments a call, um, and we are there to help them from start to finish. Um, like Kristen said, uh, we we have the IFF Center of Excellence, and then you have your local EAP. And and again, the EAP they're shifting as well. They realize that you know just a typical doc that, that the psychologists or whoever you want to talk to psychologists that they can talk to anyone. And they realize that we are a special breed in, in, in the protective services. And Kristen actually through her group has actually developed a training that, uh, that they offer for those who want to take that additional training to learn how to deal with protective service. So again, just trying to find the right one, uh, right doctor that you can, that you can talk to. So you have that access. And again, I don't want to leave Kristen's uh, program out, the traumatic incident response program. So those are all just a few resources that are available to you. It's just uh, making sure you make the call. Great. Thanks for that input. So 
you know, I, we, we kind of talk about, you know, with mental health, you know, we're, <clears throat> it's definitely becoming more, you know, accepted and talked about, and it's coming more of a commonplace thing, but, you know, how can we continue to have mental health and like these types of aspects like accepted within the fire department? Um, I, I think just education and training like we're doing today and continue that training, um, continue to let our crews know that mental health is a big concern. Um, they can pick up any trade magazine and, and it's on the front cover. Um, so we, they know it's there, but just letting them know we're there for them. And we just need to continue to break down uh, that stigma that's out there. Yeah, I would agree. I would say that 100% that that has to start at the top of the organization with the chief. If the chief believes in the need, then he or she can help truly make that culture change and grow those roots for accepting and understanding that mental health is absolutely no different than physical health. We would never not take care of a heart attack in progress. Why do we not take care of the mental health stuff that we have in progress? It definitely takes a willingness on the chief's end throughout the entire organizations to put the resources toward the program, committing the dollars, getting the right staff members, finding the right training, and supporting the need for ongoing education. Peer support has to have ongoing education, just like we do annually for our EMT and paramedic licenses. And I strongly feel that policies need to support mental health as well, mental health challenges, and not punish them. I guess on in that vein, then do you guys like are there any like specific barriers you foresee like to getting these types of processes implemented, such as like financial, cultural, that those sorts of things? I think financially, they're they're at least from my perspective, and I and I talked to our assistant chief this morning who uh, developed our program. Um, it, it's really for us, it really wasn't a financial issue in our department, but it was more of an education piece. And one of the big things she did is she talked to the HR director to find out what's available. Um, as far as an insurance and EAP and how many visits are available. And again, that varies. Um, but the good thing is that the insurance companies are recognizing the need for mental health coverage and are working with their customers as well. So the, even they are recognizing that need. Um, again, there are good EAP programs out there, um, but just making sure we're talking to the right person and that our members are not getting discouraged. As far as the culture goes, again, it's been a big barrier. Um, you know, up until recent, I, I've been kind of fighting the fight for for a while to, to get a peer support team locally. And it wasn't just until, what, maybe about two years ago that we've implemented ours. But just the fact that talking about it, really, um, the feeling was that you were living those traumatic events and made the situation worse. Again, trying to break down those stigmas. Or, you know, if a firefighter says they're going to commit suicide, again, what next? Fortunately, IFF and other medical uh, health organizations are tracking these mental health issues in the fire service, but this is a fairly new process and we're finally getting the numbers, which we didn't have before. And the numbers are alarming, as we all know, by showing the high rates of PTSD and suicide in our profession. But again, there are factual statistics. We all know that drives policy and various information is also out there. Um, but it's allowing our, our chiefs to have supported documents and, and whatever they need to implement these programs. Uh, and I'm going to give a kudos to our chief and our assistant chief uh, for doing this early on. Um, we have recently implemented our own peer support program in the process. Um, we're in the process of fi actually finalizing a, a mental health policy so no one falls through the cracks. And, and the big thing is that we're taking care of our own. There's no questions asked. We want to do that so we can get the, the members back in the right state of mind and importantly that they know they're not alone. 
Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much. I think that's about all the time we have for today. Um, you know, we went a bit over than we, what we normally do, but I you know wanted to take the extra time to make sure that we talked about this and, you know, dedicated enough time to adequately discuss it. Bob and Kristen, thanks so much for providing such valuable insight to this very underrated topic. And thanks so much for what you do to, to help fight this fight on the mental health front and to kind of continue to bring it into the commonplace and provide that, you know, that access and um, for us. Um, like regular exercise, eating healthy and routine flossing, mental health is a key aspect of our overall well-being. Uh, we know your jobs are difficult, and we hope this discussion today has helped shed some light on the tools available to help better withstand the various stressors thrown at you. What you do it is important, and we thank you for all that you do. Hope you all have a great turkey day, and until next time, take care. Thanks, Dr. Lukinski. Huge thank yous to Chief Mickey and Kristen for taking the time out today to go through some really great information with us, shed some light on an issue that's plaguing you know, many providers out and around the country and locally here within the county. So I do appreciate it. Uh, is there by chance any contact information you'd like to share for anybody who wants to reach out or a spot that they can go look to seek out help from either of your groups? I would be happy to. Yeah. I also have a, um, if you want to put it out, a, a mental health continuum kind of, I know I'm good to, I'm in crisis. Um, I would be happy to email that over as well. If you want to add that to anything. That would be terrific. Uh, we can certainly include that in our distribution of the podcast for the folks. So they have some reference to take a look at. Okay. And I'll add my contact information in there too. Excellent. We greatly appreciate it. Thanks for having me as well. And then I will in include that email to you, Jeff. Maybe we can put it all together in one contact form if that's an option. We can certainly do that. I appreciate it, Chief. And with that, thanks everybody for joining us today. Uh, all of our guests uh, that were able to speak on a difficult topic. And for all of you out there listening, it's greatly appreciated. Uh, and we will see you next month. Thanks and stay safe.